morning. My name's Sam, as Riley said. Uh, it's a great privilege to open up God's Word together this morning. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. So if you've got a Bible there, or it's going to be on the screen as well. Uh, we use the ESV translation. If you'd like a Bible, just stick up a hand and some will come around with one for you as well. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. And if you're taking notes, if you want a title for the sermon this morning, uh, one crucial question. One crucial question. So Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray again. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for the preciousness of your word to us. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds now, free us from distractions and move in us to do what you would like us to do this morning. Amen. Amen. Now, I have to be honest, when Riley first sent me uh, the message about preaching this morning and sent me the passage that I was going to preach on and I opened it up, my first thought was, what is happening here? <laughs> what on earth is happening here? This sort of seems like a kind of obscure sort of Bible trivia question that Jesus is asking the Pharisees, or, or maybe one of those sort of uh, brain teaser, teaser uh, logic puzzles. You know, Jeff is half the age of his father, and in three years' time, he'll be twice the age of his son, and you've got to work out, you know, this family tree, what's happening. Is, is this what Jesus is doing here? Is he giving these Pharisees are a brain teaser to try and stump them? Well, no, I don't think so. On further reflection, I don't think so. In fact, this particular question that he asks here turns out to be really significant. He asks this particular question on purpose. And it's particularly significant when we realise the context of the story that we're in in Matthew's Gospel. See, in this um, section that we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, in, in Matthew 22, Jesus is under attack. He's being questioned by the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, people like that. And it's a lot like a courtroom scene. Think of your favourite courtroom drama. Right? I think this is just a stock photo from jury duty training or something. But think of your favourite courtroom drama. These religious leaders have assumed the role of the prosecutor, and they've put Jesus in the dock, that is, in the place where the defendant sits and they have to answer the questions and defend themselves. And they've thrown everything they've got at him. They're asking him questions, but they're not 
genuinely looking for answers. They're doing what a prosecutor does. They're trying to trap him in his words. They're trying to catch him out. First, it was the the Pharisees asking him about paying taxes to Caesar, and they're trying to catch him out. Who's he going to side with, us or the Romans? Uh, And then you had the Sadducees who come and ask him about the resurrection, about that crazy hypothetical with uh, with marriage in the resurrection. And then the Pharisees come back and have another crack at him, and they ask him about the law and what's the greatest commandment. It's like this tag team prosecution from these religious leaders. And Jesus accepts the questioning. He sits there in the dock and he answers all their questions. And as we've seen, he answers them brilliantly, doesn't he? The prosecution hasn't been able to produce anything that has found Jesus guilty. And they haven't swayed the crowd at all. In fact, the crowd are amazed at how well Jesus can answer these questions. And it seems like the religious leaders have just run out of ideas. They've run out of lines of questioning. And I'm not sure whether it would have been as dramatic as this, but this is how I imagine it. In effect, what Jesus does now is he stands up in the dock and he walks around to the the prosecutor's bench and he tells them, look, I've answered your questions, now I've got one for you. It's your turn in the dock. I've got one question for you. And his entire cross-examination of these religious leaders is this one question. This is all he needs to make his point. It's the fundamental question that they need to be able to answer. And I think one reason that Matthew's included it in his gospel for us, and it's in Luke and Mark as well, is because it's actually a fundamental question for all of us to answer. This is one question that we all need to grapple with. We need to be sitting in the dock this morning and listening to this question from Jesus. So let's have a look at it. It's, um, I've got a pretty simple structure this morning. We'll look at the question, uh, then the answer, and then the question for us. And we'll spend most of our time on that last one. Uh, but firstly, the question. Uh, this first part of Jesus' question is there in verse 42. Have a look. Jesus asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? See, Christ is not uh, Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title of the long-awaited promised king that God promised to send to his people, to save his people and to defeat their enemies. That's the Christ or, or the Messiah, same thing. And the religious leaders give the correct answer here, at least what seems to be the correct answer. They said to him, the son of David, that is a descendant of David. Uh, And this is right. It's clear all through the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be a descendant of David. Have a look at what God says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He is the son of David. And actually, all through Matthew's gospel, Jesus has accepted this title of son of David. If you remember when he came into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey and the crowd was celebrating and laying down their coats and palm branches on the ground, 
And they were singing, Hosanna to the son of David. And actually, Matthew himself started his gospel. You know, chapter 1, verse 1, he described Jesus as the son of David, son of Abraham. And so, as Jesus goes on here and he pushes back against the Pharisees' answer, I don't think he's saying that their view of the Christ is wrong per se, but that it's insufficient. It's insufficient. It's not incorrect, but it's insufficient. It's not enough. It's not a full description of who the Christ is and who he was always meant to be. It's a bit like if someone uh, asked me who Mel was, my wife Mel. So someone asked, who who is she? And I said to you, um, well, she's a woman that lives at my house. (laughs) Now, that's correct, isn't it? That is correct. She is the woman that lives in my house, actually, the only one. But she's much more than that, isn't she? She's my wife. She's the mother of our children. She's more. So Jesus is saying, yes, the Christ is a son of David, but he's more than that. And actually, the Old Testament itself tells us that. This book that that you guys, the Pharisees, have been studying your whole life, that is the book that tells us that the Christ is more than just a son of David. So he goes on, verse 43, he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him, that is, calls the Christ, Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus takes them to Psalm 110 here. Psalm 110 verse 1. And it's a psalm about the Christ, right? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's the language of God installing a king to be his right-hand man, to reign with him in power, in an everlasting kingdom. That's what we saw in, in 2 Samuel 7. And Jesus makes the point that in this psalm, David, who wrote it, calls this future king Lord. He says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, that is my master, my ruler. Now, the point Jesus is making is this. If the Christ was just a son of David, another earthly king of Israel, then David wouldn't be calling him Lord, right? At most, he would be of equal rank with David, right? You've got, you've got David, who was king of Israel and defeated their enemies and gave them peace and prosperity. And then along the line somewhere, you'll have another David, a son of David, who's going to do the same thing, right? They'd be of equal rank. And it seems to be that this is what the religious leaders were thinking. This is what they were anticipating, The Christ they were looking for and waiting for was another David, another earthly king who was going to set himself up as the king of Israel and defeat their enemies, right? In this case, at the moment, the Romans who are over them, oppressing them. That's the kind of Christ they were waiting for and expecting. And Jesus says, look, even David knew that the Christ, his descendant, would be far greater than himself. Here he is calling him Lord, right? David places himself under his own descendant. He's looking at him in this psalm as the heavenly king, 
next to God himself who has power and dominion over everything and everyone. He's looking up at him. He's marveling at him in this psalm. See, Jesus is showing the Pharisees that their view of the Christ, it may not be technically wrong, but it's too small. It's far too small. See, what's the answer then to Jesus' question? His initial question to them was, uh, whose son is the Christ? Uh, And we don't get an answer in this story because the Pharisees don't answer and Jesus himself doesn't answer. It's sort of just left hanging. Whose son is he? But I think if we've been reading through Matthew's gospel to this point, actually the answer is pretty clear. See, in fact, we see it in some of the major turning points in the story. At Jesus' baptism, the start of his public ministry, the Spirit descends down on Jesus and a voice comes from heaven. And what does it say? It's God. And he's saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. My beloved Son. And another big turning point is when Jesus uh, is asking his disciples uh, back in chapter 16, who do people say I am? Right? And they tell him, oh, well, some people say you're Elijah, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say you're another prophet. Uh, and then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, well, who do you say I am? He puts them in the dock to answer this same question. Who do you say that I am? Uh, and it's Peter who speaks up. And what does he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whose son is the Christ? Well, he's the Son of God, the Son of David, yes, but more than that, a son, the Son of God. And actually, earlier on in this um, debate, in this courtroom scene with the Pharisees, Jesus told them the parable of the tenants. If you remember that, one, it's the one where the master, who represent, represents God, uh, goes away from his vineyard for a while. That represents the people of Israel. And he leaves these tenants in charge of his vineyard, and that represents the uh, religious leaders, the leaders of Israel. And the master sends back some servants to the vineyard to collect some produce. But the tenants refuse, and they kill the servants that come back. And then the master decides to send his own son. And he says, surely they will respect my son. But instead, the tenants kill him in order to keep the vineyard for themselves. And actually, in that story, it says the Pharisees realized that he was talking about them in that parable. He realized that they were the tenants that he was talking about. See, I think it's pretty safe to say that the Pharisees actually know the claim that Jesus is making here. They know he claims to be the Christ. They know he claims to be the Son of God. The problem is they don't want another, they don't want a son of God. They want another son of David. They want someone to liberate them from their earthly rulers, from the Romans. They want political freedom. See, they want someone who aligns with their agenda, their aims and their goals that they already have, not someone that they have to submit to and worship. 
Jesus, if this Christ is going to come off and come back and uh, knock off Caesar, right, and give us freedom from the Romans, yeah, we'll take him. That sounds good. A son of God to worship, to humble ourselves under? Well, no thanks. And so they don't answer Jesus' question. And we read from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions, right? Case closed. No further questions, Your Honour. They had their crack at Jesus and didn't leave a scratch. And Jesus asked them this one simple question, and they're completely exposed. So can you see now why Jesus asks this question in particular? This one question for the Pharisees in this cross-examination. This is the crucial question. Who do you think I am? He's happy to talk about taxes and Caesar. He's happy to talk about marriage and the resurrection and and the greatest commandments. But in the end, there's one thing that matters most of all. It's the fundamental question. Who do you think I am? And it's really the same question he asked Peter. Yes, everyone has their different uh, opinions about me, but who do you say that I am? And if you don't get the answer to that question right... Or it doesn't really matter about all the other stuff. And so the big question for us this morning is this same question, I think. It's the big question for us. Who do we think Jesus is? And is our view of Jesus too small? Like the Pharisees' view. See, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not yet decided to follow Jesus, or you're listening online, you're not a follower of Jesus... This is the question that you need to grapple with. This is the big question that we as a church exist to think about and to help you think about. Who is Jesus? See, it's, it's absolutely undeniable that Jesus existed. Right? There's no historian in the world, no serious historian, who really believes and argues that Jesus didn't exist. The question is, what do we make of him? Everyone has to have that question, has to ask that question. And one of the most common views out there is that, well, Jesus is a good moral teacher. He taught about peace and love, and he had some really good ethical teaching that sort of set people up for the centuries to come. But I hope you can see from places like this in, in Matthew's Gospel, that this isn't really an option that he's left open to us. The way Jesus spoke about himself means he could not have just been a good moral teacher. And this is what uh, C.S. Lewis, the writer, put so well, put so brilliantly, I think. And he says this. And if you're you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus and you want one thing to go away and think about this, this quote, have a think about this today. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool for a fool. 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Jesus is saying here to the Pharisees and to the crowd, I am the Son of God who's going to reign with him forever and ever over everyone and everything. Right? No good moral teacher says stuff like that. He's either a fool or he's demonic or he is who he says he is. And for those of us who are Christians, who say, yes, he is the Son of God, well, the question still stands, I think, how big is our view of Jesus? Is our view of the Christ too small? See, the temptation for us can be uh, similar to the problem that the Pharisees had. Our view of Jesus can become more earthly than heavenly. We want someone to help us with our earthly agendas more than someone from heaven who's going to come and give us an agenda of his own. That's what he was to the Pharisees. What, What they wanted deep down was power and prestige and political freedom. And if Jesus could come and give them that, well, they would take him. Yeah, absolutely. See, we might not want uh, Jesus to overthrow the Romans or even our own government of today, but we have agendas of our own, don't we? We have certain hopes and dreams. We have a vision of how our life looks like in five years, in 10 years. Maybe it's to do with our work, our career, advancing to a a certain position by a certain time or or having a a particular job that will fulfill us. Or maybe it's being in a a certain financial position where we have security or where we can buy our own home or that's the aim and the goal that we have. Or maybe it's finding that special someone that you can marry by a particular age and then you're going to have kids at this particular age and this many kids and You've all got it planned out. See, we can find ourselves thinking this. If, if we just had this one thing, then I'd be content. If we had this one thing, this last puzzle piece in our life, then we'd be content. And Jesus, if you could just give me that piece, if you could just give me that thing, then I'll be happy. And none of these things are necessarily bad things. And not necessarily bad things to ask God for. God wants us to come to Him in prayer about anything, about our earthly needs. He wants us to ask Him. But we need to be careful, don't we, in making Him a means to our own ends. We need to check our own hearts. See, Jesus didn't come to fit into our agenda. He came to save us from our agenda. He came to make us new people and give us an agenda of His own with with new desires, new priorities, new ambitions, right? To make disciples in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, to spend our lives living for others. As we saw last week, to love God and love others. That's His agenda for us, to make us more like Him. This is what He has come to do. This is the agenda that should give us direction in our lives. So what we need then is a a bigger vision of who Jesus is, 
right? The more that we come to know and love the real Jesus, the Jesus of Psalm 110, the reigning Son of God, the more that we have that vision, the less we're going to be tempted to make him into someone who fits our agenda. He's too big for that. And this really is the key to growing as a Christian. Actually, if you want to become more like Christ, the the most important thing to do is not actually to look at your own life, as important as that is, and it is important. But first and foremost, we need to focus our eyes, not on ourselves, but on Him, on Christ. I think one of the most profound verses in the Bible and impacting for me uh, is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Have a look at what it says about how we become more like Christ. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. That is, seeing the glory of Jesus are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, this is what is wrong with the the hundreds, the thousands of self-help books out there, even a lot of Christian self-help books. Uh, There's probably a lot of wisdom in there, but most of them are missing this key thing. What changes us the most is looking away from ourselves and seeing Christ, getting to know Him more, dwelling on Him more. And that's what I, I think Jesus wants us to do this morning as we gather, but also tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday morning for the rest of our lives. Behold His glory and be changed. Right? Open up this precious book, have a look, read the Gospels and we see Him, don't we? The letters in the New Testament, they're all about who Jesus is and what He's done. Even the Old Testament, Jesus says the Old Testament is all about me. And don't just read it, but meditate on it. Dwell on the truth that you read. Allow it to sink in. Think about what it teaches you about Christ and all the implications that has and what that means for the day that you have in front of you. Uh, Thomas Watson was one of the great Christian preachers in the 1600s. Looks like he's got, if you go to the next slide, looks like he's got a bit of a 1600s haircut there. He's one of the great Christian preachers of the 1600s. He said this about meditating on God's Word. And I found this so helpful and challenging, I have to say. He says this, Reading brings a truth into our head. Meditation brings it into our heart. Meditation without reading is erroneous. Reading without meditation is barren. The reason we come away so cold from reading the Word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. I don't know about you, but this is often the case for me, I think. I, I read God's Word, but it's just, it's just reading. I'm not really taking it in or reflecting on it. So take Psalm 110, for example. Tomorrow morning, you flick open, it happens to be what your Bible reading plan's up to, or you happen to flick to it, and you read verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, it's easy just to think, oh, well, that's pretty cool, something about a king, it sounds like, and sitting next to God, all right, cool, and then move on. But stop and think, what's this saying? Now, it's 
you know it's talking about the Christ because you happened to have a sermon on that passage yesterday in church, and now you know it's talking about the Christ. It's saying the Christ, the risen Jesus, my, my Saviour, my brother who died for me, is right now sitting at the right hand of God. Supreme, in control over everything. The things that seem out of control in my life today, the things that happen that are out of my control, well, they're not out of control. They're not out of His control. I can remember that, that today, whatever happens, Jesus is on His throne. My Saviour is on His throne. And maybe your heart is a degree or two warmer than it was a couple of minutes ago. And then you look at it again, and it says, you know, God's enemies, all of God's enemies will be placed under Jesus' feet. Everyone and everything that is in opposition to my Savior, my brother, will one day ultimately be defeated. The, the temptation that I get from Satan today, right? the sinful nature that I'm battling against today, maybe the people that, that give me flack at work for being a Christian today, none of these things will ever ultimately win. Jesus will ultimately win. No matter what comes at me today, I can remember that. Jesus will win. And maybe your heart, your soul is warmed maybe one more degree than it was before. And that might just be enough to get you through till the next morning, or maybe lunchtime at least, or morning tea. See, what we need is to see who Jesus is more and more, don't we? To expand our view of him so that he's not just a means to an end like he was for the Pharisees. He's too big to fit into our agendas. He's not just the son of David. He's the son of God who loves us, who gave himself for us, and he's reigning now. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for who Jesus is and what he's done. And we thank you that he is right now seated at your right hand, the nail marks still in his hands for where he has saved us and he's reigning sovereign over all. May we just have that view of Christ this week. May that view of who he is expand week after week, day after day, and so that he cannot fit into just a means to an end to our own agendas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.